Moi, j'adore dire que nos vies sont végétales. Bienvenue dans Flowers. Welcome to Flowers by Kenzo Perfume. la rencontre des actrices et acteurs. This podcast seeks out committed flower experts working towards a sustainable and fair vision of flowers for a more beautiful world. Je suis Noline Serda. I'm Noline Serda. A new generation of flower farmers are taking on a mission growing flowers sustainably and introducing their gentler perspective on flower farming to the public. It's the slow flower movement. Locally grown seasonal flowers for a slower ethical consumption. This movement has become Masami Charlotte Lavaux's work ethos. She's an activist flower farmer, founder of Plein Air, the first flower farm in Paris. Masami Charlotte has been the ambassador of Flower by Kenzo since 2022. Inspiring and inspired, every day she works towards a more beautiful world. Fundamental values shared by Kenzo Perfumes. With this in mind, I've joined her to meet people who act, each in their own way, for a living flower, and who inspire her in her daily work. In this episode, Masami Charlotte Lavaux meets Mathilde Bignon, co-founder with Audrey Venant of the Parisian flower shop Désiré. In their flagship store, nestled in the heart of the 11th district, the two florists pay special attention to the origin of their flowers, their terroir, and their history. Mathilde and Audrey strive hard to buy locally and sustainably grown flowers against the mainstream of the globalized flower industry. Bonjour. Hello, Mathilde. Hello, Masami. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> we see each other regularly in real life, but I'm very happy to see you again today. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Mathilde Bignon, and a little more than five years ago, with Audrey Venant, my business partner, we created Désiré, a slightly unusual florist shop. We are located in Paris, and our distinctive feature is that we work exclusively with local, with seasonal and local flowers, local in a broad sense, since we work with flowers from France, but occasionally with flowers from the Italian border in the San Remo region. Bienvenue chez Désiré. On se trouve dans la boutique rue de la Folie Méricourt dans le 11e. Donc vous avez euh, des fleurs qui sont euh, bah, sur la gauche, le long de la verrière. Ces fleurs, elles ont une particularité, c'est que des fleurs de saison. Donc là, vous voyez bah, des renoncules, euh, des anémones, des petits narcisses, euh, des giroflées. Des œillets, c'est vraiment les fleurs d'hiver. Et euh, du genêt, pleine saison du genêt en ce moment dans le sud de la France. Moi, j'avais une passion des fleurs depuis petite. I've had a passion for flowers since I was a child. I grew a lot of them with my grandmother, who had an absolutely inefficient garden. It was very funny. She had a small plot of stones in the city center of Toulon, and she was tirelessly tending to her little garden, always starting over. And nothing ever grew because it was absolutely not meant for it. <laughs> she had really beautiful pink oleanders, and when we would visit, we would always have some flowers in our rooms. She actually made bouquets. With her, I made wedding bouquets for my aunts, for example. 
I think this tireless movement of returning to flowers, it's engraved in me. When things go wrong, we have to return to flowers, always. Because flowers are the source of everything. They're the foundation of fruits and vegetables, obviously, the foundation of our whole diet. And I actually think it's also something that is completely necessary, mentally speaking. We need to have access to the plant work, to something that lives, that fades, that evolves, that is going to seed, that is unexpected, that is unpredictable, that we can't control. I think it's something that's very necessary for human beings. I know that before you opened your first shop in the 11th district in Paris, you went on a farming tour de France, a flower farming tour de France. And did these visits and the time you spent traveling, did that shape your way of working and does it still now? And, and also, I'm wondering, do all florists do this before they open a shop? Does everyone make the effort to go and visit all these people? With Audrey, we were in a bit of a particular situation because when we met 12 years ago, we were cheese buyers for the large-scale retail sector, so nothing to do with flowers, really. But we were in charge of protected designation of origin cheeses, and we were lucky enough to travel around a lot to meet dairy farmers and dairy producers and an industry that is quite damaged. And we completely fell in love with the farming world, with working on the whole supply chain, and we realized how important the human factor was, how getting along with people made it possible to move forward, to get new ideas, and to do things that would serve the community for the long term. So when we approached flowers, we really approached them with this idea of a supply chain. So obviously, for us, it was super normal to start with visiting flower farms. And that completely blew our minds because we realized that by observing florists around us that 80 to 90 percent of flowers sold in France come from abroad and not only from Holland. Holland is where everything transits through, but they also come from a lot of countries in the south of the equator. Ethiopia, Kenya, Ecuador, Colombia. We were not expecting this at all. In fact, I think a lot of people have this expectation when they see a fresh cut flower. They think it must come from around the corner. So then we wondered if there were flowers in France, if it was possible to grow them here. Then we realized we were in France, the only country in Europe capable of producing flowers all year round. From March to November in the Paris region and from November to March in the Var region in the south of France. So we had this incredible luck of being the only country that allows us to buy local blooms all year round, if not all year round. And so we took it to our heads and go meet these growers. On va avoir des fleurs qui ont poussé en plein champ, par exemple ces anthémis qui sont là. C'est des fleurs qui viennent de chez Catherine Perletto, c'est une productrice qui est à côté de Douillère, au Canba, donc sur la commune de Carcairan. On a visité cette exploitation, c'est extraordinaire. C'est des petits bosquets qui ont vu sur la mer. C'est des collines en restanque, donc euh, c'est des espèces de petits escaliers. Et euh, on a des petits bosquets d'antennis qui sont là et qui ont vu sur mer. Donc euh, elle nous apporte un peu, de <rire> un peu de soleil de Méditerranée. And then we realized the flower market is quite opaque. Flower farming isn't very structured, and there are no large interprofessional organizations with everybody getting to meet, and so on. Everyone has their own way. And it's uh, also quite a confidential market. Growers barely talk to each other. So it actually took us a lot of time to understand the cut flower industry, because we would first meet someone, and we would try to make a good impression. 
we would manage to get on quite well. And after a few visits, breakfast conversations, they would introduce us to someone else. So we managed to map out the supply chain over the course of several years because they all ended up trusting us and because we succeeded in creating friendships. So the human factor, I think, has always been at the heart of our approach, obviously, but we've realized that it has to take priority over everything else. You're super involved in the whole cut flower supply chain in the community. You're very active in the Collective de la Fleur Française, uh, which was founded by Hélène Taquet. We see more and more florists looking very closely at flower farming and literally jumping the fence, growing their own flowers. Do you think that all florists should go out and into the field and, and get growing? Do you think it's a viable trend? I don't think it's sustainable on a daily basis because those are two completely different jobs and it's difficult to practice both at the same time. I think everyone should go and see flower farms because it's extremely important to know how hard the job is and what the reality of the job is and the time it takes. It allows for a much more balanced relationship. You don't negotiate prices when you're directly speaking to the grower. There's a form of respect that grows between all parties that is really important. Knowing what we are selling is also extremely important because to be able to sell it well, because if you visited the farm, you can say, oh, this Icelandic poppy comes from Ludo's. <laughs> Here you go. I know how it grows. I know where. I know that there are also wild poppies around the farm, that he doesn't use any pesticides, that his son breeds chickens, and isn't that nice, right? So it really helps me sell my products. And I think it's very important to have this connection in order to have this story. Because the supply chain, it's a continuation of stories. But there are models being established in which florist farms or farmers arrange bouquet. And I find this very interesting. The challenge for me is to find an economic balance in all of this. And I find this really interesting because there's a logic to it. You grow what you like, you have your favorite flowers, and you want to make something beautiful out of it. I find this extremely logical. Ma grand-mère habitait à Toulon et à chaque fois elle m'envoyait un colis pour mon anniversaire et dans le colis il y avait du mimosa séché. Donc elle me faisait des petites enveloppes avec des tas de brins de mimosa séché et j'ouvrais le colis, ça embaumait le mimosa, c'était un truc incroyable. Et parfois il y en avait encore dans le jardin quand on descendait pour les vacances d'hiver voir mes grands-parents. Et voilà, moi c'est vraiment un souvenir de dingue. Et le mimosa a un effet hyper rigolo sur les clients parce que quand on en met dehors, on met des gants là. Et donc nous on est dans la boutique, on est là. Et puis on voit les gens passer et puis ils mettent la tête dedans. Mais on voit franchement, euh, je sais pas, 10 personnes par jour qui se penchent et qui mettent la tête dedans parce que pas, ça fait cet effet-là de mimosa. Tu vois un truc jaune et poilu comme ça, ça sent tellement bon. Il y a vraiment ce côté, je mets la tête dedans qui nous fait vraiment beaucoup, beaucoup rire. Les visiteurs qui viennent à ma ferme, people who visit my farm are sometimes surprised that I grow flowers in Paris. They sometimes ask me, but so you have a flower farm? I thought flowers grew just like that, like mushrooms. And sometimes I have the feeling that everybody is not necessarily aware that cut flowers are agricultural produce and that you don't just find them on the side of a road on the countryside. So do you think you could trace back for us the life of a cut flower before it lands in a vase? 
employees in your customers' homes. There are many people involved in flower production. It all starts with a seed or a bulb. It even starts before the actual seed or bulb. It starts with the creation of a flower. It's similar to fruits. If you find a wild apricot or wild peach, well, it's really tiny and it has a super thick skin. It doesn't really look like you, what you would find at the market. Flowers have also been transformed compared to what you would find in the wild. They've been slightly worked on. Some hybrids are natural crossbreeds. It's not necessarily a horrible tampering of DNA in a lab, right? But basically you take a flower, and then another one, you tap them against each other, poof, poof, and there you go. The pollen mixes, and that's how you create a hybrid. And then breeders select the most interesting varieties for cut flowers. That's the plant breeder's job. They work on the development of new varieties, and it can take up to five or six years to create a new variety. Because once you create a seed, you have to plant it to two or three years in a row to check that the breed is stable and that the flower is not suddenly going to change shape or color. The plant breeding part takes a significant amount of time. Then comes the seed or bulb producers part. These are the people, either they're breeders or they're people who buy varieties from breeders, and they're in charge of reproducing or commercializing them. Many of the growers we buy from, in the south of France, work with two historical plant breeders, Bianchieri, uh, an Italian plant breeder in San Remo, whom we were very lucky to pay a visit to, and who works on extraordinary varieties, and also Le Comptoir Paulinois, near Hier, who works a lot with a lot of flower farms in the south of France, um, as well as in the Paris region. That's for patented seeds, but it's possible when you grow flowers to create your own seeds. For example, if you grow annual flowers, they produce tiny seeds, not bulbs, that you can harvest. You collect the seeds, and then you sow them again the year after. After the seed step comes the growing itself. Flower farmers have to do all this sourcing work, looking for varieties, finding what they want to plant, and then growing them. You know this better than I do, but you need around nine months, on average, to get a flower. It's like a baby. <laughs> it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, at all. And then, once the flower is there, you have to sell it. Commercialization is one of the big topics, because farming is already more than a full-time job. If, on top of that, you have to take up a sales job, which is also a full-time job, you'll just work way too much, and soon you'll get exhausted, and you won't want to do this anymore. So there are people who are in charge of selling the produce, the wholesalers or the carriers. And we're not against wholesalers at all. For us, they're not useless middlemen. There's no uberization happening here. <laughs> there are people who specialize in flower transportation, that is, in the transport of flagell products, and who are going to bring them from, for example, the south of France, to the wholesale market in Rangis where we will collect them. And these wholesalers, they're in charge of putting together an interesting assortment. And they're also in charge of forwarding the florist's wishes to back to the growers, and so forth. And then, well, you have the florists and the final customer. In terms of quantity, florists represent only a small part of the chain. But in value, they're quite important. We sell approximately 60% of cut flowers sold in France, but in terms of volume, we're around 30%. Many flowers are sold in supermarkets, garden centers, etc. But what florists also bring, it's advice. And it's really important to succeed in keeping both the advising and the human connection parts. Par exemple, 
Est-ce qu'on pourrait avoir une idée de combien de jours s'écoulent par le moment où l'horticulteur ou l'horticultrice a coupé la fleur dans le champ et le jour où elle arrive sur la table de la table tout dépend énormément d'où elle vient. It really depends on where it comes from. You see, if we look at the global flower market today, in France, we have approximately 80% of imported flowers. These imports can come from Holland or Kenya, let's say. A flower from Kenya will be cut on a Monday and then will travel on a plane to Alsmere, Holland's flower market. In Alsmere, it will be packed and then transported by truck from Alsmere to Rangis and then finally to us. On average, there are five days between the moment the flower is cut in Kenya and then the moment it arrives in Rangis. Then you'll need two or three more days for the florist to sell it. So it often takes approximately one week. But these are flowers that were engineered for that. Research was done so that these flowers last a very long time in a vase. So these flowers usually have a three-week vase life. But when we buy a flower grown in the Paris region, like we do between March and November, it's picked on a Monday, then sold in Rangis, in the night between Monday and Tuesday, and it's in our shop on Tuesday morning. So in this case, there are not even 24 hours between harvest and commercialization. So we can afford to buy varieties that have a shorter vase life. A very good example for this are roses. Nowadays, roses aren't fragrant anymore. When you go into a shop, you'll try to smell. You'll put your nose in a bunch of roses, and it just smells like plastic. I mean, it's sad. But that's because these roads breeds were designed to last as long as possible. And biologically, when a flower is fragrant, it lasts a bit less because it will attract insects sooner, be pollinated sooner, and therefore it doesn't need to last very long. Une renoncule, c'est un petit bulbe. Ça s'achète en petites griffes. Ça va pousser. Là, celles-ci, elles ont été plantées en septembre. Donc elles sont plantées sous forme de petites griffes. Elles sortent de terre. Et ensuite, on a des fleurs qui, euh, bah, ça forme un petit bosquet, ça ressemble un peu à de la salade, hein, c'est un vert assez foncé. Et puis, euh, les fleurs forment des petites boules, c'est assez beau. Et euh, on a beaucoup de clients qui les prennent parfois pour des pivoines, parce qu'il y a ce côté très, euh, plein de petits pétales les uns sur les autres qui forment une jolie petite boule comme ça. Nous, c'est des fleurs qu'on adore, elles sont très, très colorées. Elles ont, en fait, on, on pense que l'hiver, c'est une saison triste pour les fleurs. Mais au contraire, je ne saurais pas trop expliquer pourquoi, mais les fleurs d'hiver ont vraiment une concentration en couleurs hyper intense. Donc là, on a un jaune soleil extrêmement vif. On a un orange très profond qui tire sur le brick, qui est magnifique. On a un petit saumon avec un, un, cœur, un cœur vert qui est, qui est aussi très, très doux, très délicat. Là, ce jaune citron qui est super joli aussi. Et la And the global flower industry, what does it look like? It's massive. There's a huge international flower trade that people usually don't suspect at all. It's similar to the coffee trade. Agricultural products that transit like this from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. It's a very particular trade because it's very much centered on the Alsmeer flower market in the Netherlands. Approximately 70% of the global cut flower production passes through this auction. And when you think about it, it's huge because China and India are heavy flower consumers. Mostly for religious purposes, but they self-consume. They produce and consume what they grow. 
So this means that if you remove the Indian and Chinese production, almost 100% of industrially grown cut flowers of the world transit through this market in Asmir, and that is quite insane. It's a market through which around 44 million flower stems transit every day. That represents 16 million euro in daily revenue, and it's a market that is open every day. The surface area of it, it's absolutely crazy. It's the world's second largest building after the Pentagon. That's 250 football fields of flowers. The auction market, where the buyers are, is not even at the same place where the flowers arrive. They load it on a sort of little tram and then travel 18 kilometers to get near the place where the buyers are. They don't even see the flowers. They, they see a screen with the variety, prices flashing, and so on. The whole trade is centered on this platform. Flowers arrive from Kenya, from Ethiopia. They land at the Schiphol International Airport in Amsterdam. They're brought to auction, and from the auction, they're dispatched all around the world to Europe, to the United States, to Japan, to all the flower-buying countries. It's quite particular because this system has led to a strong standardization of flowers. Stem height, flower quality types, like top quality, premium quality, and so on. It's all very standardized. Growers have had to adapt, of course. More and more flowers are actually clones, an individual plant that is going to be reproduced 30,000 times and that's always going to produce the same flower. It's the reason why when you pick up a bunch of roses at the supermarket, they all look the same. They all have the same shape. Cut flowers have become extremely standardized projects, a really far cry from what flowers are in nature. Of course, if you massively spray pesticides on flowers, they're not going to stay only on the flowers. They're going to leach into the soil, causing permanent soil contamination, which is hard to assess because rose farms are still in place. So no one can go and take samples from their soil and tell them, guys, you won't be able to grow any green beans here until 2050. And because there's obviously a human cost, uh, because these chemicals are transmitted to farm workers who are rarely well-equipped simply because of the heat, personal protection equipment is heavy. You have to wear overalls, you have to wear a mask. So even when farm owners try to implement all of this, after a while, these precautions get abandoned quite quickly. Were there any flower farms that you found particularly interesting? Farming models that gave you hope for the future of flowers? We visited a lot of different farms before settling down, and it was interesting because in the south of France, we saw models that were reassuring from an economic point of view, but not necessarily from an environmental point of view. But we saw some fascinating models. One of the growers we work with, Ludovic Morel, we love this guy because he's super innovative, takes things on, and he's right. For me, ecological, ecology has a logical side and an economic side in the long term. Ecological farming will necessarily be a winning situation. And Ludovic used to grow anemones in intensive monoculture, but he decided to diversify his crops. What's interesting is that he worked with the SCRAD, a horticultural research station attached to Stridor, a French horticultural research institute located in Iyer. And with them, he worked on new varieties. He worked on new growing methods, on water recycling, on the recycling of the nutrient solution he feeds his flowers with. He's really driven by innovation. We also worked together on some new varieties. 
We pestered him a bit to get Icelandic poppies because they grow them in Italy. So we told him, please, we'd love to have some in France. We'd love it. And he finally gave in. And in the end, it sold so well that the year after, he doubled his Icelandic poppy surface area. Et quand ils s'ouvrent, qu'ils sont assez... Euh, tu vois ce bruit un peu doux. On dirait qu'on caresse du tissu, vraiment. Et euh, bon, bah, on a des petites pistils jaunes très vifs à l'intérieur. Et la tige est souvent un petit peu tordue, un petit peu courbée. Ça, ça donne un très joli mouvement. Donc voilà, il faut qu'on enlève la petite cosse. Et ça arrive dans sa petite cosse, toute fermée. Et puis ensuite, on enlève cette petite couverture poilue verte qu'il y a sur les pétales. Et là, le pavot se déploie complètement. Comme si on ouvrait euh, un petit pochon de tissu. And then, in the Paris region, there are also models I find innovative, that are innovative by nature, like the Brossard family farm. The parents and grandparents were already great innovators. Chantal Brossard, the mother, who just retired, was the first grower campaigning for the creation of a grower association in the Paris region. And she kind of succeeded, but it was too early. She was a trailblazer in the 80s. She finally managed to create an association with only four or five flower growers, and it kind of ended up falling apart. She's the first one who thought the future would be collaborative. Her children, especially her son Valentin, took over the farm with his wife Julie. They have a lot of incredible ideas to make the farm thrive. They just took over a new, bigger plot, and they want to farm in a new way. But they also want to have a nice life with their kids, to have weekends off, to have summer holidays, to not work all the time like crazy. But it also gives us a lot of hope to see people our age, 35, taking over their parents' farm. There's also Ludovic Moregard, who's taking over Les Fleurs du Moulin, his parents' farm. It's a funny story. His parents really didn't want their children to take over the farm, and they told them, it's too hard a job, you won't want to do it. So the three children went to business and engineering schools. But in the end, one of them still gave up his career in banking to take over the farm, investing in it, really taking all the hardship into account, thinking through the organization, and so on. Nowadays, we can't do what we did 40 years ago. We can't work the same way, breaking our backs, 75 hours a week and earning peanuts. We have to invent new work methods that are in line with today's youth aspirations, and uh, mainly that means not working ourselves to death. Are there any models of flower shops that inspire you? When we launched our business, we visited a lot of flower shops, and we realized that often, the emotional experience is really important. Florists provide flowers at every stage of our lives, for births, for funerals, 
and so on. On y va quand on veut offrir We go to flower shops when we want to give something, when we want to make people happy. And often when you enter a shop, well, you don't always find what you want. You don't see the price, you don't know the names, you feel a bit stupid. <laughs> It's a complicated experience. And then sometimes you get out of the shop and you're really not happy with what you got. I think it's one of those products that comes with a less than ideal buying experience. Except, of course, if you have a good florist in your neighborhood, for example. So at first, we did not get inspiration from florists, but rather from good shopkeepers we liked, like good cheesemongers, of course. <laughs> Being a florist is a very difficult job because it's a mix between being an artist and a shopkeeper. And those two jobs are barely compatible. <laughs> you rarely find these two talents in the same human being. Alors là, tu vois, on a regardé les fleurs à l'unité, mais si on va dehors, on a aussi des bouquets tout faits. Ça c'est important parce qu'il faut aussi se mettre un peu à la place du client. Il y a des gens, ils sont pressés, ils ont besoin d'avoir un bouquet tout fait, ils prennent et puis ils partent avec. On a des bouquets qui sont 100% en fleurs du Var. C'est important aussi pour nous de pouvoir montrer qu'on a une provenance qui est bien maîtrisée. En plus, ça touche les gens parce que c'est vrai que Paris, il y a très peu de Parisiens. Il y a quand même beaucoup de gens qui viennent de toute la France. Et du coup, bah, ceux qui viennent du Var sont contents de voir qu'il y a des bouquets de fleurs qu'ils ont vus chez eux aussi. Et là, par exemple, dans un bouquet 100% Var, bah, tu as des renoncules, des anémones, du statis qui vient du sud aussi, qui est une petite fleur qui est très sympa, qui sèche, un peu le jaune et blanc, quelques anthémis. Donc ça, c'est un bouquet vraiment... Euh, là, du mimosa qu'on a utilisé quasiment comme un feuillage dans des teintes jaunes. Donc ça, c'est des choses qui marchent très, très bien chez nous. Et les gens aiment bien nos compositions en général. C'est assez coloré, c'est assez vif. Puis c'est pratique. Floris I look up to, who inspire me, are people who have always been true to their values, who have always worked with local productions, and who have always appreciated how extraordinary these flowers are. I'm thinking especially about Frank and his flower shop L'Arbre in Paris in the 6th arrondissement. At Désiré, we haven't invented anything. What we decided to do, he's been doing for years, working with local farmers on spotlighting seasonal flowers. And many other florists also work like that today. These are the craftspeople we get our inspiration from. These are artisans, I believe, that are models for the future. They really stand up for what they believe in. They know the growers, and they can tell a story. Thank you very much for coming, Mathilde, and for this long conversation about flowers. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flowers, a Kenzo Perfumes podcast. You can find the series on all your podcast platforms. I'm Nolene Serda, and Flowers is a Kenzo Perfumes podcast produced by Louis Creative. Masami Charlotte Laveau and I have co-written this episode. Camille Bichler and Eloise Normand are in charge of production. Charles de Cilia is on sound production. The original music was composed by Marine Guémery. Until next time. <laughs>